0: Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. It is 6 o'clock in the morning here in Sandusky, Ohio. Uh, I wasn't supposed to get up till about 7.30, but I just woke up out of my sleep with the idea for this episode, and it's something I've been wanting to cover, and I had I kind of put it out of my head because I hadn't figured out quite how to cover it yet, and then this morning I just sat right up in bed and said, that's it, that's how we're going to do this. So I want to cover two things today. The first thing I want to talk about is the music I use for the podcast. There is a song that I use often that uh, is titled Life Unfolds by Derek Clegg. And it's a song I use a lot of times at the end of the episodes. If you would go back a little bit in some of the earlier episodes of the podcast, I also used it in the beginning as well. And I've gotten several emails from, uh, from you as listeners wanting to know who that music was from. Again, Derek Clegg, D-E-R-E-K. And his last name is Clegg, C L E G G. And the name of the song is Life Unfolds. And uh it really it was kind of a neat uh thing. I when I first started the podcast, I knew I needed to have some intro music and exit music. And uh and I wasn't sure what to use. I know that Mormon Stories and Mormon Matters and others have got some hymns that have been redone. And I just, I wanted to do something a little different, and I wanted something that captured kind of the spirit of the podcast. And so I went online, and I just started looking for free podcast music. And the very first site I came to, and uh, right in the very front page, there was a list of their their kind of first 20 songs. And I just saw the name Life Unfolds, and I thought, you know, that's kind of what I'm thinking about. When it comes to the podcast, I just want to explain kind of how Mormonism unfolds on us and how we deal with that. And so I downloaded the song and listened to it and I thought, yeah... That's it, well, about a month ago i uh, I approached Derek Clegg and asked him if he would be on the podcast. Don't get too excited. Uh, he actually said no that he would prefer not to, and he gave a really solid reason for saying that. He said no because he didn't want to come on the podcast and explain what the what the impetus was behind writing that song, "Life Unfolds," and explaining it. He wanted to let each of us as listeners and uh, and as me doing the podcast. Be able to have that song mean to us what we want it to. And the reason I mention all of this is that at the end of today's episode, I'm going to play another one of Derek Clegg's songs titled Hollywood. And uh, and I hope you'll understand why I picked it, because I think it ties in very much with the episode that we're going to talk about today. So with that, let's jump into it. Often, I think that we get it wrong. I think we've gotten it wrong in the past, and the church admittedly says so with racism. And I worry, I'm deeply concerned that we're getting it wrong at the moment with not speaking out more on the LGBT issue, both as members and possibly even as the church generally. And I want to explain why I think we as members need to speak up more and perhaps why the church generally doesn't say a whole lot. I've had conversations on here in the past with Mitch Main with Wendy Montgomery, with Kevin Klusterman speaking about the LGBT issue. I did an episode also where I spoke about my present position on the issue. That is still my present position. I I stand behind the doctrine. I will not uh, demand that that change. But I do ask and hope and pray that we will soften in some way our policies and our culture to be more accepting and more understanding, more empathetic, more loving, and more Christ-like towards those who are gay. But it doesn't always happen that way, right? Our culture sometimes throws back. And I've mentioned in those episodes, and those who I've interviewed have mentioned, that if we were to look at the homeless population in Utah, for instance, that a large chunk of that, percentage-wise, are gay kids who have been kicked out of their homes because their parents felt the need to show them tough love or to defend the church against their children. It's, it's as if it's been planted in their mind that that is the Christ-like thing to do. Also because of our culture being so unaccepting and so looking down upon those who are gay and showing them that tough love, many enter states of depression because of that unacceptance and often I'm not saying all the time, I'm not saying a majority of the time, but often and to be frank, one time is too often. It leads to suicide. And many in the apologetic side of the church would argue that that this is simply just a stand we have to take or that there is no correlation between the the homelessness and suicides of gay youth and the way in which their parents in the, uh, treat them or that that or that that treatment is not connected to the, what the church teaches, and today I want to take a stand, and I want to say yes, it does, and I want to show you why and how, and then I want to ask that each of you speak out against this, and and I hope I hope the church generally gets to a point where it's able to speak out against this, but I understand the predicament it's in. So with that, let's share some of the ideas. The first idea is that we are led by prophets, seers, and revelators. And that by having prophets, seers, and revelators, and marking the idea that all 15 men are prophets, seers, and revelators, this puts kind of into the culture the idea that all 15 men speak directly with God. That can be somewhat problematic, especially at times... When they when they say one of them says something that just to my soul seems atrocious, and yet obviously many in the culture will assume that those words are God's words. And so this idea, which which I think is true, and I think we need to hold on to that they are prophets, seers, and revelators, is is fine. The trouble comes in when it is combined with other things. So if we could somehow culturally and in our teaching make it clear, more clear than we have, I get it, Elder Christofferson and Elder Anderson have both said that a single statement made by a leader is not binding on the church. Okay, those were made at a single point in time, we got to keep saying that. President Uchtdorf said that church leaders have made mistakes, and they may have made mistakes that violate culture and doctrine. Great, good, but let's keep going. It may take us specifically naming those mistakes because some of these things said are so atrocious and they cause such deep damage that unless we speak out specifically against them, some members are left to think though those are the words of God and they continue the hurt and damage. The other idea that combines with this is Elder Benson, who later becomes President Benson, his uh, his teaching of the 14 fundamentals of the prophet. He says, in number four, the prophet will never lead the church astray. President Wilford Woodruff said, I say to Israel, the Lord will never permit me or any other man who stands as president of the church to lead you astray. It is not in the program. It is not in the mind of God. President Marion G. Romney tells of this incident which happened to him. I remember years ago when I was a bishop and I had President Heber J. Grant talk to our ward. After the meeting, I drove him home. Standing by me, he put his arm over my shoulder and he said, My boy, you always keep your eye on the president of the church. And if he ever tells you to do anything and is wrong and you do it, the Lord will bless you for it. Then with a twinkle in his eye, he said, But don't you need to worry. The Lord will never let his mouthpiece lead the people astray. The, again, the trouble here is that many in our culture make the leap that the Quorum of the Twelve and the, and the counselors in the First Presidency, because they are also prophet seers, and revelators, this same kind of rule culturally applies to them just as much. And once we begin to get the idea that the prophets and seers and revelators unitedly won't let the church astray, and that some even make the leap that individually they can't lead the church astray, we begin to make connections we shouldn't. Here's the trouble with saying that doctrine is what all 15 men teach. What if one leader of the 15 teaches something and the other 14 are silent in correcting it. Is that approval? Well, you say no. Well, then let's say this. If doctrine is only those things that I can find all 15 men testifying and teaching of, that takes a whole lot of things off the table. For instance, Elder Oaks, um, in the last couple of general conferences, has spoken about the Church's stance on homosexuality. Is that the Church's stance? If only he speaks about it and the other 14 men don't testify and back up each particular point that he makes, is it fair to say that all 15 are in agreement? Or can I just throw that out and say that's not binding on the church? You see how messy this gets? And if, and if when one of the 15 teach and the other 14 are silent and do not correct it, then are we left to make the assumption then that that is binding on the church. See, there is no way around it because there are exceptions, examples of exceptions on both sides. And some of those exceptions are crucial points to our theology, right? If I can't find all 15 men testifying that there was a premortal life, if I can't find all 15 men testifying that Jesus was born of a virgin, am I left then with the ability to toss that out as not binding on the church? Or... Does silence mean approval? And if silence means approval, then we have an even bigger problem. And it's this problem I want to talk about today. In 1981, President Marion G. Romney gave a talk, We Believe in Being Chaste. It's in the September 1981 Enzyme. And he says this, he says, we believe in being chaste. He says, you will recall Alma's teaching his son, Corianton, that unchastity is the most serious offense there is in the sight of God save, murder, or denying the Holy Ghost. See Alma five. You will remember, too, these words from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. 1 Corinthians chapter 3.16-17 Some years ago, the first presidency said to the youth of the church that a person would be better dead, clean, than alive unclean. Alright, I want to stop there because it gets worse from here. But he's making a point that sometime in the past, the first presidency said that a person would be better dead clean than alive unclean. To me, one, that rings of the ability to do such serious damage, right? I mean, if I am a youth and I am gay in 1981, the view in 1981 is that being gay is a choice. That's the view in the church. So my being gay is a choice, it's a sin, because it's not tolerated by God, and I'm better dead before I commit any kind of sin with this than being clean alive. And just being gay rings of being sin. The church teaching... That those who are gay but have not acted on it are clean and worthy before God is a relatively modern teaching. We can't go back to 1981, I don't believe, and please listeners, point it out if I'm wrong, and I will post it on this episode at the end in the notes, but I don't believe there's anywhere stated, 1981 or prior, that being gay is not a sin, only that acting out on it is. That's a pretty modern teaching, And so essentially, Mary G. Romney is saying that for the gay child, you're better off being dead than being unclean and alive. And then we take the idea that these are prophets, seers, and revelators, that prophets can't lead the church astray. And then even adding the modern idea that all 15 men must agree for it to be binding, and then realizing that all 15 men rarely ever testify of the same things other than Jesus is the Christ. So is that the only teaching that's binding? And if we're going to say other teachings are binding... Then we're going to have to allow that all 15 men have not testified of something. And then we have Marion G. Romney saying that the first presidency said at some point in the past that a person would be better dead, clean, than alive, unclean. And then he says this. He says, I remember how my father impressed the seriousness... Of unchastity upon my mind, he and I were standing in the railroad station at Rexburg, Idaho, in the early morning of the 12th of November, 1920. We heard the train whistle. In three minutes, I would be on my way to Australia to fill a mission. In in that short interval, my father said to me, among other things, "'My son, you are going a long way from home. Your mother and I and your brothers and sisters will be with you constantly in our thoughts and prayers.'" We shall rejoice with you in your successes, and we shall sorrow with you in your disappointments. When you are released in return, we shall be glad to greet you and welcome you back into the family circle. But remember this, my son. We would rather come to the station and take your body off the train in a casket than to have you come home unclean, having lost your virtue. Wow! That, again, strikes me As even more wrong than what the first presidency said. That essentially, son, we're sending you off on your mission and we'd rather pick your body off the train in a coffin than you having committed some serious sin. Where is the atonement, brothers and sisters? Where is the atonement in this? Jesus died because each of us falls short of the glory of God. Each of us need the atonement, and each of us need the ability and the time to learn through experience and to repent of our sins and to become clean through His mercy, grace. It's through our willingness, realizing that we're imperfect and becoming humble and turning to face Christ, that His grace is sufficient, that we can become like Him. Do you feel the spirit in Mary G. Romney's comment? I don't. And then you add to it this... He finishes up by saying, right, he could have, he could have stopped here and the talk could go on. He could say, but brethren, I want to speak out. Those thoughts are incorrect, but he doesn't do that. He adds his testimony to it. He says, I pondered his statement at the time. I did not then have the full understanding of it that my father had, but I remembered it every time I approached temptation. I understand it better now. And I feel the same way about my sons and grandsons as he felt about me. And then you guys wonder why church members kick their gay children out of their home and why they push these kids by marginalizing them and ostracizing them and criticizing them and hammering on them about how they can fix it. Why these kids enter a state of depression and some of them kill themselves. And then you add this idea, right? Elder Oaks, in a fireside talk on the 4th of May, 1986, he says... Truth surely exists as an absolute, but our use of truth should be disciplined by other values. For example, it is wrong to make statements of fact out of an evil motive, even if the statements are true. It is wrong to threaten to reveal embarrassing facts unless money is paid, even if the facts are true. We call that crime blackmail. Doctors, lawyers, and other professionals are forbidden to reveal facts they have received in confidence, even though those facts are true. Now, I want to say, Elder Oaks here is speaking a truth, that any time our motives are, are evil, we are out of bounds no matter what we're saying, true or false. That the only reason we should be talking about truth is to help and lift up others and to shine a light on sin. I get it. I'm all for that. The trouble comes in, though, when we begin expounding on that idea. Elder Oaks, in a 1987 uh, talk that is in the Ensign, it is in February of 1987, the talk is titled Criticism. Here's a paragraph. Criticism is particularly objectionable when it is directed towards church authorities, general or local. Jude condemns those who speak evil of dignities. That's Jude 1.8. Evil speaking of the Lord's anointed is in a class by itself. It is one thing to depreciate a person who exercises corporate power or even government power. It is quite another thing to criticize or depreciate a person for the performance of an office to which he or she has been called of God. It does not matter that the criticism is true. As Elder George F. Richards, President of the Council of the Twelve, said in a conference address in 1947, when we say anything bad about the leaders of the church, whether true or false, we tend to impair their influence and their usefulness and are thus working against the Lord and his cause. That was an address to Church Educational System teachers, August 16th, 1985. So I'll stop here, right? So from this point forward, I take a risk. and, And I've taken this risk before in the podcast. I hear the quote, I should not criticize leaders even when that criticism is true. I hear that. And generally, I agree with that. There are lots of nitpicky things I could pick on that I say, oh, I disagree here, I disagree there. The times I speak up, though, are when I feel like it involves a huge issue within our culture. Some would say, for instance, that me bringing up the April 6th issue in a podcast was being critical of leaders who had taught that April 6th was the birth of Christ. But my point in doing so was to show that we sometimes overstep what the Lord has said In Revelation. We overstep taking doctrine and rather than being true doctrine, it is false doctrine that is in our church. That's That happens. I think it's fair to point that out. And while some of the brethren would say, no, you can never say anything about the leaders, even if it's true, you should not criticize, I can't help. But as I think about what I'm sharing today, how it does great harm, and that the only right thing to do is to stand up and say, no, Culturally and as an institution, we can't teach things like it's better that your child come home from their mission in a casket than come home having committed some serious sin that, hold on, that they can repent of, that they can become clean of, that they can learn from. Heck, if we're gonna, if we're gonna say every couple in the church who have had premarital sex, they should just have been killed before that happened. Now all of a sudden we're getting into making connecting dots to blood atonement that bring him young taught. This is silly. This is ridiculous. We have got to stand up and speak out against the nonsense in our faith. And so I am. And again, there's a risk. But so be it. It's the right thing to do. And when it's the right thing to do, it is fair to take that risk. So we have Elder Oaks saying we can't criticize leaders. We shouldn't criticize leaders. Criticism of leaders, even when that criticism is true, says more about you and me than it says about them, which puts such pressure on me to just keep my mouth shut. I can't do that. I look at the 14 Fundamentals. I see President Benson saying that leaders can't lead the church astray. And then I see President Kimball throwing out Brigham Young's Adam God doctrine. I see today's church leaders throwing out past your church leaders' teachings that the race theories, which were once taught as official doctrine, as being wrong. I see that it is absolutely a fact that our leaders in the past have made serious mistakes and in some way, shape, or form led the church astray. Now, if we want to say leading the church astray doesn't mean on these just little peripheral issues, it only means on the ordinances and having priesthood, fine, great. But nowhere does anybody say that's what it means. We're all left to figure it out. And because of that, many in the church... Make a completely different interpretation of what it means to not lead the church astray. And they assume that means that the brethren will never lead the church off track in any way, shape, or form. But on the other hand, the brethren already admit that they've made, that we make mistakes, that we have gone off track. So we're gonna have to be better about going back and saying, okay, we know so and so said this, but that really isn't appropriate. That really isn't the the, the right way to deal with this idea. So we have Mary G. Romney and President Benson and Wilford Woodruff talking about not leading the church astray. In 2015, the new uh, manual, uh, the President Benson Teachings of uh, Our Presidents, has a chapter that speaks about this talk of the 14 Fundamentals of the Prophet. And it makes the point again about the brethren not leading the church astray. I hope that each of you will be brave enough to raise your hand in that class and share an alternative. You don't have to raise your hand and say that President Benson was wrong, I, I think that perhaps would kind of overstep the line. What I would suggest you do is raise your hand and say, hey guys, let's slow down for a minute. Is there another way to think about this? President um, Uchtdorf made the comment that we've at times made mistakes and that some of those mistakes have violated our doctrine. It's also fair to say, brethren, that there are alternative opinions to what President Benson has said here. Let me give an example. President Joseph Fielding Smith said every man who writes is responsible, not the church for what he writes. If Joseph Fielding Smith writes something which is out of harmony with the revelations, then every member of the church is duty-bound to reject it. Reject it. If he writes that which is in perfect harmony with the revealed word of the Lord, then it should be accepted. Okay, brethren, we have that. What is the revealed word of the Lord? The revealed word of the Lord is that a prophet is only a prophet when acting as such. That's quoted by Joseph Smith. And that... Whether it's by my voice, my own voice, the voice of my servant, it is the same. But how do we know when a leader is speaking under God's voice? It's when the Holy Ghost bears witness. And while each of you are free to decide if President Benson here is speaking by the spirit of the Holy Ghost, I would offer that we have known instances in the past where the church has taught things at one time that we now today look back and say, those previous leaders were wrong. And I simply offer that as an alternative I hope that we'll each be brave enough to speak up and say something along those lines to give people a different view. So we have those three leaders saying that the church can't be led astray. We have the new manual for twenty fifteen restating the same idea. We have Elder Oaks saying that it's not appropriate to criticize a leader even when that what that criticism that we're sharing is true. And then we have Mary G. Romney saying something, and essentially reiterating something that he's heard the First Presidency say, and he seems to indicate that the people that he's speaking to, hence those in the listenership of that article, have heard the First Presidency say, that is damaging to others and hurtful. It has to end. And I get it. The 15 brethren must agree. They must be united to put some new idea forward. So, without a shadow of a doubt, there are apostles... In the 15 who are not comfortable with our policy on the LGBT issue. But either God has to come down and speak and give a direct revelation to his prophet or all 15 men must be united in, in making some, some change in that doctrine or in the policies. Without that revelation and without that unitedness, no one of those leaders feels comfortable sharing something new Or putting down something that was said in the past. But mark my words, there are members in that 15 who are not comfortable with where some of the policies and things are at today. That's just the nature of getting 15 men together to have conversations about these issues. And because there hasn't been a change yet, doesn't mean necessarily that God is comfortable with these issues. Do we think in 1941 that God was comfortable With the First Presidency teaching that those who were black were less valiant in the pre-existence? By no means, no. There's no way, no. And yet, we sometimes assume that because God is silent, he is comfortable with where we're at. I don't think so. And so I get it. The 15 men can't say anything. They are limited to what they're unified on or where revelation has come. But that principle doesn't apply to you and me. And so you can make a choice today. You can either remain silent because of the pressure that's on you and I, to not say a word, to not speak up, to not offer alternatives in class because we're all alone in the way we think. Or you can begin to do so and begin to affect a change in your little part of the vineyard. Brothers and sisters, please hear me. I sometimes burn bridges. I sometimes hurt feelings. I sometimes go beyond the mark and I i am so set on correcting an idea that I know I lose political capital in doing so. I hear that. And I've got to be better about the way in which I offer alternatives rather than set people right. That said, silence is one of the worst things in the world when it comes to these issues. To be completely silent when you know others are being marginalized, ostracized, damaged, hurt, and possible even killing themselves goes beyond the mark as well. I hope that each of us will speak up. I hope that each of us will be able to have the courage to raise our hands and not with evil motives, not with a desire to make the church look bad, not with a desire to do anything other than to help lift up the hands that hang down and to strengthen the feeble knees. That's my prayer. When this episode ends, I hope you enjoy Derek Clegg's song, Hollywood. And with that, God bless each of you. May the Lord warm your shoulders in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Hey Hollywood, I'm here singing the blues. Someone, someone, way too soon. And don't you say those words, all I want to do is hear me. Can you hear me? Don't you say those words, all I want to do is hear me. Can you hear me? Hey, Hollywood. I'm here Singing the blue We lost someone Someone way too soon And don't you say those words All I do is want You want to hear me, can you hear me? And tell me, you're alone with me I need mean too much, you just don't care And tell me, you're alone with me I need mean too much, you just don't care Hey Hollywood, I'm here singing the blues We lost someone You took him way too soon And don't you say those words All I do is want to hear me Can you hear me? And don't you say those words All I do is want to hear me Can you hear me? And tell me I just don't care And tell me, you're alone with me I need too much, you just don't care And tell me, you're alone with me I need too much, you just don't care Hey Hollywood, I'm coming soon